Welcome to the H&E Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through discussions on church history, biblical spirituality, the Bible, Christian living, and theology. Shall we get started? So I am joined here with uh, Dr. Bennett Rogers, and uh, we're excited to have him. And uh, Bennett is the the editor for our book, Simplicity in Preaching by J.C. Ryle, and he's also a J.C. Ryle scholar. So Dr. Rogers, thank you for joining me. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so did you, why don't you just introduce yourself and tell our many, many listeners, who you are and what you're about. Sure, sure. Um, well, um, my name is Ben Rogers. I have uh, a wife named Christy. I have two boys, Henry and Hugh. Henry is eight. Hugh is five. Uh, I teach Bible and Latin at a, um, at a Christian school in Jackson, Mississippi. And I pastor a small Reformed Baptist church in uh, rural Mississippi in Mendenhall, which I'm uh, quite certain almost nobody knows where, where that is. Um, in seminary, I got into uh, J.C. Ryle, sort of by accident. I originally wanted to do uh, doctoral work on John Bunyan, um, but moved from uh, the 17th century. My interest kind of shifted forward in time to, to the 18th century and the leaders of the Great Awakening. And I read this little book called Christian Leaders of the Last Century by J.C. Ryle. And uh, it was his, you know, series of biographies that he wrote about the leaders of the the uh, Great Awakening in England, and just loved the work itself, and was fascinated uh, first by the subject, but then by the author, and realized that uh, this this Anglican bishop was a remarkable theologian, pastor, teacher, and very little academic work had been done on him. Uh, his books have been in print since uh, since his death. Uh, but I remember kind of doing some background work uh, in the year that Charles Spurgeon died. Spurgeon was a was a contemporary of Ryle. Eleven biographies were written in that year he died. Uh, in the hundred years since Ryle's death, uh, about six biographies of Ryle have been written, uh, or at least at that time. Uh, there's been a, a renewed interest in him, thankfully, in the last few years. But he's this giant of Victorian evangelicalism, uh, who I think is so, such an interesting and edifying figure. And so I got into him and started doing work on him and, and spent um, my doctoral, you know, the remainder of my doctoral time at Southern Seminary uh, focusing on Ryle and his work. And um, that's what I've been doing really since 2010. Oh, that's great. Thank you. It's uh, it's quite shocking. Every time I read Ryle, I'm, I'm always shocked how clear and how simple and uh, helpful he is. I always overlook him. You know, one of the I, I've been teaching the Pilgrim's Progress now. I teach it twice a year, every year. Um, and Ryle really strikes me as someone who takes the the theology of the Pilgrim's Progress and writes it in simple, clear English for nineteenth and twentieth and twenty first century readers. I mean, it's just he. Re, you know, if you read Holiness or his other works, Practical Religion, Old Paths. I mean, this is just kind of standard Protestant evangelical theology stated simply and clearly and, and forcefully. I mean, that's one of the things I think is so remarkable about Ryle is that he he sticks it. Uh, he doesn't merely you know, talk about sin. He 
he convinces you uh, that sin is evil and needs to be repented of. So he's a, you know, he's a lot of fun to, to read and study and to, to learn about and write about. Uh, one quote that uh, was in your introduction was, uh, he said, I do not want to fill your heads, uh, but to move your hearts, which I find very appropriate. And uh, that's what, that's how I feel when I read him is uh, he's engaging. He's trying to move my affections to Christ and move my life to uh, uh, orthopraxy. And, w- and what's remarkable, we, we kind of discussed this in Simplicity and Preaching, is that is that Ryle's really taking a classical uh, homiletical goal that is persuasion. And just, I mean, he, he is a classical orator with evangelical pastoral priorities. And so in, in one sense, you have the best of both world, worlds, this, this great commitment to persuading an audience, persuading a reader um, of evangelical truth. And so that, that's one of the reasons I wanted to see Simplicity and Preaching kind of come back out uh, is because it's just it just offers such good help for pastors to think about how to communicate good truth in simple, clear, forceful, persuasive ways. Um, and so I'm, I was really excited to get to, to do this uh, with you. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, J.C. Ryle? Who, who was he? Tell us more of his life and ministry, and then we'll get more into simplicity and preaching. Sure, sure. Well, he's born in 1816, so a year after Waterloo. Uh, about the same time uh, my home state became a state in, in the United States, or thereabout. Um, and he was raised in an incredibly wealthy home. So his, his grandfather made a fortune in the silk trade, uh, during the you know English and French wars, uh, and because most of the silk came from France, when England's at war with France, nobody wants to buy French silk, and so he made a killing. He made tons of money, um, but he was also a, a godly man. Uh, his mother heard John Wesley preach, and invited his son to to hear her son to hear John Wesley preach, and he was converted by John Wesley. They became good friends. Uh, John Wesley preached from. Ryle's grandfather's home from his doorstep in his front yard in open air. Um, so they had a, a really unique relationship. Um, J.C. Ryle's grandfather, John Wesley, which is, I think, one of the reasons R- Ryle is so uh, writes. He writes a short biography of Wesley, and uh, he writes very positively of Methodist. He had a good experience with Methodism uh, growing up. Uh, but sadly, his father inherited all this wealth but seemingly none of that spiritual concern. So he was a man who was, was interested in being a pillar of the community. He was interested in making money, uh, but he didn't inherit his, you know, his father's uh, spiritual concern. Uh, and Ryle talks about that uh, in, in sort of a sad way in his autobiography and in other places. You can kind of catch it uh, in different works. If you don't know Ryle's story, you might not know that, that when he talks about you know, that, that, that grace uh, isn't transmitted genetically, um, that he may even be thinking of his own family there. But he grew up with incredible wealth, with everything the world had to offer. He was an outstanding student and athlete. He went to Eton College, which is an ex- you know, exclusive private school um, in, uh, you know, in his own day. Uh, went on to Oxford and was a great athlete, a great student. Um, he won first-class honors at Oxford and really... Um, was in a small class by himself at the very top of that list uh, when he graduated. And towards the end of his time at Oxford, he became a Christian. Now, he had been taken to church all the time growing up. I mean, that's, that's just what you did, but it never made a dent in him. Uh, and the ministers that he heard growing up were what he called high and dry sticks. 
uh, of the old school, which uh, that he's not complimenting them in that sort of way. So, so they didn't preach evangelical truth in a persuasive way, in a direct way that Ryle uh, would go on to do. Um, but you know, while he was in college, the Lord began to work in his life through Anglican institutions, through Anglican uh, formularies like the Thirty Nine Articles, like um, his examinations. I mean, that was an important part of his degree. He was he was uh, examined in theology as a as an undergraduate. And those studies made a dent in his heart, and the Lord used these things. Uh, his conversion, uh, the summer before his graduation, is almost like uh, you know a legend now, right? He wanders in. He's been sick, really discouraged. He wanders into a church that he doesn't remember the name of. There's a guest minister there that he doesn't remember the name of, um, but he hears Ephesians 2, 8 read in this emphatic way. By grace you were saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. And uh, he's converted. I mean, that's it. Uh, he has that verse written on his tombstone. So that that moment, really that's a process, he says in his autobiography, but that was the kind of the, the, the climax for him. He became a, a, a committed Christian, an evangelical Christian at that point. His family hated it. They associated evangelical Christianity with fanaticism. They said he just, he said that they thought of him as nothing better than a mad dog. Um, and he just he after graduation he went home. He went to England uh, to London for a while to study for the law, but that didn't take. So he comes home to prepare for life in politics. Uh, he's an evangelical Christian, um, and then his father goes bankrupt. Now, in our day, I mean, I don't know how things are. If you watch TV here, you'll see you know, lawyers advertising for a bankruptcy services. That's not something that's unusual, and it's not particularly shameful in our day. In Ryle's day, it was, it was quite literally a crime, a crime that would knock you down the social ladder. Um, and there was no limited liability at the time. So everything had to be sold. I mean, Ryle talks about selling his uniform, his clothes to liquidate his father's debt. Uh, he would pay on that debt for the next 20 or so years, even wearing kind of ragged clothes rather than buying new ones to, to help pay that off. So, um, And uh, he didn't know what to do at that point. So he he's an evangelical Christian whose father went bankrupt. They lost everything. He's, he has fallen rungs down the social ladder. And so he said he entered the church. He became a minister because he felt shut up to it. Now, um, I don't know what you think about that sort of uh, call to ministry, but it worked for him. And uh, he became a curate in New Forest for a couple years. The minister that he was an assistant to, that's what a curate is, uh, was basically gone three quarters of the time. And so he was all on his own, tried to figure it out on his own, made, he said, sad mistakes. Uh, but he found his feet, he found his voice, he made his way to Helmingham, a small, um, a small rural parish uh, in Suffolk, and um, and really that's that's when he learned to preach. Uh, that's when he started writing. If you like expository thoughts on the Gospels, that's when they started. Uh, he became known for writing tracts. Now, when we think of, or when I think of an evangelical tract, I think of you know a three, four page little gospel presentation. Uh, Ryle's track on regeneration is like 90 pages. So you should think small books rather than when you hear track, don't think, you know, three, four pages, think 30 pages, 40 pages, 50, 60. Uh, and um, he became uh, a pastor, a preacher that people wanted to hear. Uh, he married a woman during, during his time in Helmingham. He actually married, um, he actually married three because his first wife died. Uh, he married another a woman, Miss Jessie, 
and they had they began having children, but she had very difficult pregnancies. So she would they would go convalesce in London, and while he was in London, he would meet all the other evangelical clergy there. He would speak in their pulpits, and so he began to get this, you know, God's providence, a, a pretty significant reputation as a preacher, as a as a younger man because of those seasons in London and at home. Um, and really, at, at that point, he, as he became more in demand, he got more writing opportunities, and his tracks took off, uh, his commentary series took off. He wrote hymn books, which I really like. If, if you kind of pick up my biography, I, I write a big section in a chapter on his hymn books because no one's ever talked about that, and Ryle wrote uh, a bunch of them. Um, and he may have written two hymns, too. Now, I'm still kind of working on that, um, but there are two. Uh, there's an old Methodist hymn book that attributes two hymns to him, and one of them sounds just like him, like the language he uses in a tract on faith that the same year that that, uh, that that hymn was published. So I think there's a good shot he wrote one hymn, but I'm still hunting that down. Um, and then, you know, just to kind of speed things up a bit, uh, his ecclesiastical star goes on the rise, right? He's recognized not just as a a young leader, but over time he becomes the leader of the evangelical party. He's involved in every fight they get into, from a higher criticism uh, to a new views of science, kind of the beginnings of Darwinism. He doesn't get into the science of that so much, but the practical implications of it. Uh, and of course, his, his biggest challenge was ritualism or Anglo-Catholicism. And so a lot of the a lot of the strong Protestantism that you catch in his writings is really being forged in that fight with Anglo-Catholicism because he really thinks that Protestantism is important. Um, he thinks that, that it's basic biblical Christianity. And so he fights for that his whole life, his whole ministry. He fights for that in Helmingham and, and Stradbroke. And then as the Bishop of Liverpool, um, it's kind of funny, Ryle's ministry, for the most part, was in small rural villages. And then uh, in 1880, um, uh, Disraeli's uh, government um, gets voted out and William Gladstone's gets voted in. And before Gladstone can assume uh, prime ministership, uh, the Disraeli wants wants to appoint a new an evangelical bishop for Liverpool. And so he, which is Gladstone's hometown, to make Gladstone mad. And so he has uh, Ryle appointed. So Ryle, as a 64-year-old, who's only ever ministered in the country, goes to the second biggest, uh, the second city of the empire. Uh, if you think about that, you know, when you think about Liverpool from 1880 to 1900, the, just the stats are simply staggering. One out of every seven ships in the ocean in the world is owned in Liverpool. That's where the Titanic, the Titanic is being made. Um, that city went from about 30,000 at the beginning of the 19th century, maybe a little bit before, to, you know, 1.2 million, you know, in, a, in just, a, you know, 150 years. It's remarkable how big that city grew. Um, and Ryle here is the first bishop of this city that has, you know, far more people than ministers to see them. I think he, his goal was to get one minister to every 5,000 residents. Um, in the end, it was only he could only get about one to every nine thousand residents, and, and some districts only had one minister for twenty-five thousand people. Um, so we're talking about just very few ministers, so many souls to shepherd and bring the gospel to. But all things considered, I think he does a remarkable job. You know, his his vision as a bishop is is uh, is preach the gospel, get more ministers, plant healthy churches, and just keep doing that over and over and over again. 
Um, and if you look at kind of the stats, when he was able to do that, um, you would find, if you kind of look at religious censuses during those 20 years he was bishop, when he was able to ordain more ministers, when he was able to, to plant more churches, um, a greater portion of the population was going to church every week. But once the church building kind of subsided, once it was dif more difficult to, to ordain more ministers, um, you know, the, the population was outstripping uh, the attendance significantly. And uh, he passed away in 1900, uh, you know, in the year Victoria did. And I think I've covered most of the big bases uh, in that retelling. That's fascinating. We need to just set up a webinar and just let you have at it. It's uh, I'll, I'd sign up. So uh, I, I, I still have to read your biography. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so why don't you tell us more about his his work on preaching, the simplicity in preaching? How did that come about? Sure. Well, well, the book was written in 1882. So that's two years after he becomes the Bishop of Liverpool. And what he finds in Liverpool is he's got about, you know, 400 ministers to, uh, you know, 1.2 million people. And um, one of the things that he sh that, that he was always he was always critical of the Church of England's ability to train ministers to preach. In fact, up until the up until I think shortly after Ryle left Oxford or Oxford created a chair for sacred rhetoric. But before that, you just you read Cicero, you read Aristotle, you were taught, you know, you, you were examined on them. But you, it's not like you go to preaching class. You know, if you go to seminary today, you take preaching classes. You didn't get those opportunities. Uh, or many, many, many men didn't. And Ryle has all these people he wants to hear the gospel. Um, and he's got very few ministers to, to do that. And the ones he has, many of them aren't trained well and don't know how to preach persuasive, powerful, simple sermons. And so that's where simplicity comes about. So, so Ryle writes simplicity not because, you know, I mean, he, he, I think he mentions in there that there's a million books on preaching. Just, just as there are today. I was kind of looking back through my, my own library, and I have a stack of books about preaching that I've collected over the last few years. But Ryle tackles one aspect of preaching, and that is simplicity, because he wants his ministers in Liverpool to be able to preach the gospel simply and clearly. That's, and that's the genesis of the book, and uh, that's what he did it for. Um, and I think it's an incredibly helpful book. Again, it's not trying to give you a theology of preaching. It's not, you know, you, you, I'm sure you have or, or and, and your listeners have have books on preaching that survey preaching in the Old Testament, the preaching of, you know, in the prophets and the preaching of the New Testament, and the apostles and churches. He's not doing that. It's like, how can how can you take how can you learn to become a simple communicator? Because when Ryle first got into ministry, remember, he wasn't trying to be a minister at least before his ordination, he was going to be a politician. Um, and he had very little experience preaching. And so he began as a young minister to, to experiment with, with uh, delivery methods. And so he would take the, the most popular preacher of his day and try to, to mimic that. And he said it put his rural congregation just to sleep. I mean, they just, they slept Sunday off. They would say they loved Sunday best because they could pick, kick their feet up and uh, sleep an hour, you know, in, in the church that day. And so Ryle, through trial and error, learned how to get and keep their attention. And that's what simplicity is about. How can you get and keep the attention of your hearers um, and deliver the gospel to them in a persuasive, powerful, simple way? Uh, and really, the book is consists of, what, five points? That's, that's what it's about. He says, if you want to be a simple preacher, do these five things. One, you got to understand the text that you're, you're preaching. Sounds pretty simple, but, but 
it's so true. I mean, I think we've all, unfortunately, I won't say we've all heard sermons like that. I've certainly preached sermons like that, where it was clear uh, from the get-go that I didn't quite understand um, the text as well as I should. And, of course, if, 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 if the, the minister, if the preacher doesn't understand the text um, well, it's, not, it's impossible that his sermon is going to be crisp and clear and simple and persuasive. So first you've got to, to understand the text you're preaching, uh, which, by the way, is why Ryle didn't like consecutive expository preaching. Now, I like consecutive expository preaching. Uh, a lot of Ryle's friends liked consecutive expository preaching. Uh, Ryle didn't like it because he didn't think people could be simple enough. He didn't think that they could preach through, you know, uh, Isaiah and and be as simple and clear as they needed as he needed to be um, week in and week out. So um, I disagree with Ryle on that. I think that uh, I like consecutive expository preaching, but that's why he didn't like it because he didn't think that that most ministers and congregations could uh, could kind of track along. Um, so, first of all, make sure that you understand your text. Se- second, use simple words and phrases. And that, that sounds that sounds so simple, right? But 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 many people, many preachers don't do that. Uh, they use big words when they uh, should use smaller words. Um, they use more complicated, sophisticated words when uh, when they don't need to. And, and Ryle learned by preaching to agricultural laborers. That's who he's preaching to: manual laborers, uh, farmhands. Most of his ministry was spent preaching to farmhands. Um, and so he had to communicate justification in a way that they could understand. He had to, to communicate propitiation in a way that they could understand. And uh, if you've ever read, you know, expository thoughts on the gospel, that's a great, you know, he, he, has a, he has a knack for explaining something, explaining a big word in crystal clear terms. So I, I think he's, he's just a master at that. And that's a great, that's the second point. You simple uh, words and plain speech. Um, thirdly, uh, develop a simple composition style. Um, so, so you write simple sentences. Uh, Ryle was a manuscript writer. Spurgeon didn't like manuscript writers, but Ryle was a manuscript writer and a manuscript preacher, at least much of the time. Um, and he wanted the, the language. He wanted his spoken word to reflect his written word, which was supposed to be simple, which was radically different than Victorian literary theory. I mean, if you've ever read a Victorian novel um, or you've read a sermon by John Henry Newman or, or, or Charles Spurgeon, they don't use short short sentences. They use long flowing sentences. Uh, Ryle did not do that. Um, and I mentioned that. I, I, I do a, a comparison um, in, simpli- in simplicity where I compare John Henry Newman, a very famous uh, Roman Catholic contemporary of, of Ryle and Charles Spurgeon. They all preached on John 11, right? The, the resurrection of Lazarus. And what I did is I looked at how many words that they, that their sermons consisted of. Uh, both Spurgeon and, and Ryle preached much longer sermons than Newman, which shouldn't surprise us because for Roman Catholics and Anglo uh, Catholics as well, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper takes a much more prominent role in worship than, than the sermon. But Spurgeon and Ryle are cut from the same cloth theologically. They both preach roughly the same length of sermon. But when you look at the length of their sentences, it's just radically different. I mean, I think Newman Newman averages about 30 words a sentence. Spurgeon averages about 24 words a sentence. Ryle is like at 14. So, I mean, it's his sentences are short. They are sweet. They are to the point. That's why they're so easy to read now. 
You don't, it doesn't feel Victorian. When you read holiness, it doesn't feel like it was written 150 years ago or 130 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. And uh, Ryle uses a lot more paragraphs, too, that, than Spurgeon does. So he, he likes to condense thoughts very tightly. He likes to say a lot in a few words and stick it to you. And that's, uh, that, that's, that's what he does. That's the, and that's the fourth hint, right? Use direct speech. He, when you read Ryle, he talks to you. He doesn't say we, he doesn't say us. He says you, you this, you that. Right now I'm working through uh, thoughts for young men. And throughout that book, he says, young men, you, you, you. He doesn't say we, he doesn't say us, they or them. He's talking directly to the reader. I think that's one of the qualities that gives Ryle's works that freshness, that convicting. There's a convicting element to Ryle, I think. Um, and some of that comes comes is due to the fact that he is speaking right to me as a reader, specifically with the language he's using. And so I think that's the fourth hit. That's you. And then fifth, uh, he likes anecdotes and illustrations. You know, when I was in seminary at RTS, illustrations and anecdotes were, were sort of frowned upon because of their abuse. In American sermons 20 years ago, it, it would not be uncommon to hear basically the the word and the, the preached word being obscured by personal stories or effects. Ryle doesn't do that, but he does use, I think, and he uses them well. He uses illustrations and anecdotes well. I can remember one example. I think he mentioned this in Simplicity, that when he's talking about total depravity, he would just pick up his keys uh, and, sh- and shake them out in front of the audience and say, this is why, why do we have locks on our doors? It's because of the fall. It's because of total depravity. So he would do things like that to, um, to drive points home. And those are really the five points. I mean, that's simplicity in preaching in a nutshell, right? Make sure you understand what you're preaching on. Uh, use simple words and plain speech. Compose simple sermons. Be direct in your preaching. And use and illustrate truth with anecdotes and illustrations. And that's that's what Ryle wanted his preachers to do in 1882. Uh, and I think it. I think it's. Uh, <laughs> I, I I think that that advice is not out of date. When he talks about the illustrations, you know, they're self-evident when he uses them. He doesn't need to explain uh, the meaning behind his illustration. Uh, they're they're obvious immediately right. to his hearers, which which I find uh, that, that those are the kinds of illustrations we need to present uh, the people that we're communicating to. Sure. And he studied those. I mean, I mean, this, you know, it's not just he's good at it. He works at these things and all of these things he works at. So, I mean, you know, one of the things about Ryle that I, that I think is encouraging as a minister is that was he given, did he have unusual natural gifts? Yes. Um, but here's a man who was thrust into the ministry with really very little foresight, uh, had very little help. Um, I mean, he even says in his autobiography, like, I had no helps. I had only books to help me. I made many sad mistakes. It was trial and error. But he's a guy who was willing to work at it. And that's and simplicity is kind of the fruit fruit of that labor, and he he wrote another book. What does the earth teach? Or a little track, not a little track, but a track, and it's where he goes around and just he observes nature and kind of the spiritual lessons that that he uh, thinks are there, and those find themselves find their way into his sermons. So he's somebody who's storing his mind with anecdotes and illustrations. Um, like you said, not not awkward, random, off the cup, unrelated sort of stuff, but but thought out, studied uh, illustrations and anecdotes that that really do, I think, stick it. They, they really do, and they really illustrate what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. One thing I appreciate about him is 
he seems to love his people that he's communicating with. So as you said, you know, the people were falling asleep, which, you know, part of that is their own fault. It is the, sure. you know, we do come to, to sit under the word. But today what we would probably hear is, oh, if, if you're bored or if you're falling asleep, then uh, you must just be a stupid sheep or something deeply troubled with you. Uh, and so the, the temptation is as leaders is to insult the sheep rather than intentionally love them and serve them and communicate it right. in a way that even though right. other leaders of the day might not like your method, but to communicate in a way to that's, like he said, to get that truth into the heart of your listeners. Uh, I really appreciate that. And he he would even speak of justified slumber. <laughs> so so he would say some sermons deserve to be slept through, and and that would be kind of a you know to to, to he would say that to ministers, not to probably to, to his congregants, but but just urging ministers to to to, to work on work on these skills. Uh, that you know, and he said he had he studied the sermons of Spurgeon. He studied the sermons of Moody. He would he said you, ministers should study. Uh, the sermons of anybody who draws a large crowd and keeps their attention uh, to learn from them. So he, in simplicity, he also talks about like great examples of simple speech. And he mentions Shakespeare and he mentions Bunyan. And so here's somebody who's actually looking for ways to do it better because he cares for his people. Um, and something else just to know about Ryle, I didn't mention this earlier, is that Ryle made it a goal to visit every member of his parish once a month. So, I mean, he, here's somebody who knew his people well. And I think that that, I think, contributes contribute to the success of his ministry. And I think that makes him unique in some ways in terms of, I mean, uh, Victorian England, there were lots of pastoral visitors, I mean, ministers who, 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 did, who did that and did that well. But there weren't many great preachers who did that too. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a Spurgeon scholar, or a Martin Louis Jones scholar, for that matter. I've got a good friend Ben Bailey who is, but those weren't men who spent, you know, visited 300 homes a month, right? Or you know, or however many it would be. Raul had about 300 people that he ministered to in Helmingham, um, but but Raul made it a goal up until really later in his when he had curates in uh, Stradbroke, I think, to to visit every home once a month. Um, and so I think that too can that too contributes to his persuasiveness as a minister because he knew who he's speaking to. Um, he knew kind of he knew how to reach them. He heard them talk. Um, he talked to them. And so I think that that's why he wrote hymn books, by the way, because he had members of his congregation who were too sick to come to church, um, who were invalids. And so how could he minister to them when they couldn't come to him? Well, he could do it through tracks and he could do it through hymn books. Um, so it's really that. You know, his, one of his wives before she died was an invalid for almost 10 years. So her that trial in his life and in her life, it kind of opened up this new avenue of ministry for him that piggybacked off of his, his home visiting. His, um, but uh, anyway, just, a, just such a neat guy. It's interesting to me because not only is he teaching and preaching multiple times a week, but how, how many members of his parish would he be visiting in a month? The goal was all of them. In Helmingham, there were 300. Um, and and so, you know, unfortunately, I haven't been able to find like some sort of ministerial uh, calendar for Ryle. But, you know, one of the things Ryle says is he's when he's writing about Charles we uh, John Wesley, he says, it's amazing how much you can get done in 12, 12 hours a day if you try. And so, and so I think that Ryle probably um, spent half of, a, half of most days visiting 
And you know, that would just be a regular work week for him. Now, granted, these are small villages. Everybody kind of lives close together. That would be, and in a parish system, that works differently than it would in a, like a bad, you know, Spurgeon's congregation didn't live within a, you know, uh, geograph- there wasn't like a geographical box that everybody who went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle lived in that would be true of Ryle and Helmingham and Stradbroke. So, so in these smaller geographical regions, it would be, it wouldn't take as much time to go visit everybody. And do I think that he visited every home probably once a month? Probably not. But what if he visited everybody's home three times a year? I mean, that's that that that's remarkable if you think it, and, and so different than what we see. I mean, today, you know, if you think about the church world we, we live in, or at least where I live, there's there's multi-site campuses where you can go to we can go to a church and the the minister, your, your pastor isn't even in the same room with you. He's, at a, you know, 100 miles away or 30 miles away or 15 miles away. And you may never even get to, you know, to, to shake his hand on a Sunday. Riles in your home half a dozen times a year. So I think that again, it's just a different sort of pastoral philosophy. But it's but it's that kind of hands-on. He loved Richard Baxter. I think he tried to be Richard Baxter as a as a house to house visitor, and that in that in turn, really just uh, I, I think just blessed his ministry, helped his ministry. And when he got to Liverpool, that's what he told his his men to do. He's like, be in their homes, go visit them. You know, talk to if the men aren't there, talk to the women. If the women aren't there, talk to the children. If you and there's a great biography, by the way, it's called "What Hath God Wrought" by Richard Hobson. Have you heard that name before? Uh, Banner put out his autobiography a few years. It's phenomenal. He was one of he was Ryle's favorite minister in Liverpool. Um, Ryle gave his Bible to him when he died, and uh, this Richard Hobson was Ryle's ideal minister. And when Ryle praises him in a church congress, he talks about his house-to-house visitation, how well he knew his people, how diligent he was in doing those sorts of things, and how that you know just just had a, um, a remarkable effect on his ministry there. And I really think that it's that sort of it's that personal contact, it's that that you know active shepherding by Ryle that really I think helped him as a communicator to learn to speak to people who didn't go to Eton, who didn't go to Oxford, who didn't have first class degrees. Um, and I, I think, and, and we benefit from all that work, um, not just in simplicity, but every time you pick up a really well written work from Ryle, you're benefiting from all the work he did, getting to know people, fine tuning his language, his delivery, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a lost art. In most pastoral books that I've read or, or teachings I've listened to, one of the emphasis isn't go and be with your people, intentionally spending a, a lot of your time as a pastor with house to house is not something that we hear today. No. And I think if Ryle were kind of to come back from the dead, he would say, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing with your time? Um, and he would say, this is the, he would call this, he would call the, that one of the apostolic weapons of going house to house. Um, like, like Paul said he did, and that he was in people's homes. He was talking with them. He was preaching to them there. Um, and that in turn, he, and he pointed out that the great evangelical fathers, um, he would mention like George Whitfield, who was a regular preacher in uh, Selena, a countess of Huntington's home. And through that, that kind of home-based ministry, he was connected with other folks. And of course, other guys, uh, you know, I think William Grimshaw and John Barrage, he has these, these great homely stories about how, you know, one of them was during a, during a hymn, one, during a really long psalm, 
uh, he would kind of one of them would duck out the back, go out a window, put on like a cloak, and uh, go find some dudes who are hanging out in the you know in the lawn, um, and uh, just start talking to them, and then kind of unmask himself. I'm Batman. Hey, get into the church, um, you know. So he, anyway, just a really neat, really neat figure, and I think I really think that I really think that that the house to house emphasis. I mean, I pastor a small church, so that's easier for me to do. Um, or it was easier for me to do before I became a bivocational, um, you know, small church pastor. But really, I think that I, th- I think that if, if you're, I just think it's it's so helpful in so many ways, practically and pastorally, to be in your people's home, to be on their turf, uh, and they'll tell you things they would never tell you at church. They'll share struggles with you that they would never share in front of, you know, Sister Sue, you know, sitting two rows up. Um, and I think Ryle knew this, and I think it just helped him as a pastor. I think, um, and I think that in turn helped him as a preacher. And I feel like I'm being redundant, but that's I think it's so important to understanding Ryle is that house to house, how house to house ministry uh, impacted the rest of his ministry. I think was significant. Yeah, we need to find some sort of uh, track to reprint on someone describing how how you're to actually do house to house ministry. Uh, obviously, doing that today is a little bit different, but it is. But but you know, Ryle, Ryle was a single man, a single young man, actually a single bankrupt man uh, when he began his pastoral ministry. So he had two strikes against him. It's just, and, and he said that he was he was. I mean, he's this giant, athletic dude. I mean, I think in his sixties he weighed two hundred twenty pounds. So he's like uh, he, he's a large, he's a very big, strong guy. His nickname was Magnus. Uh, in high school and college, that's a great nickname. Um, but you know, here you have this this guy who's athletic, who's smart, who used to be rich and now he's poor. Didn't intend to go to ministry. Doesn't know what he's doing, and that's how he got into tracks because he would go visit his people. He really wouldn't know what to say to them. He would give them one of these tracks, and they would read it and talk about it. And then he would go take it and give it to another house, and then give them another one. And so, you know, I love that this wasn't easy for Ryle, but he got good at it because he tried, because he worked. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be fun to kind of to kind of call all of Ryle's, uh, the pastoral visitor talk in his corpus and put it together. I, um, and I, to, to me, it's also just what he doesn't, what isn't said. He just expects that out of his ministers uh, and out of himself. Uh, so... I'm really curious. Do you have any idea how long he would have actually preached for? No, I, I, I don't. Um, he, when he was at Helmingham, you know, kind of the way the, the politics of, of uh, a small church village, a small, a small village in England in Victorian times would work is that you had this, the landowner, the squire. Um, apparently he thought Ryle preached too long because he would stand up and kind of tap on his watch and, um, Ryle was the only untouchable in that village. So his, his position was not dependent upon the squire like everybody else in the world was. And so he just would keep preaching on. So, uh, But if you look at his sermons, his printed sermons, um, I've never tried to read one fully out loud just to see how long you, you know, it would take to recite it. My guess is, and he says this, that, 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 um, that he often beefs them up in writing different than they were in, in print. But I'm guessing he preached for, do you know what Spurgeon preached for? Do you have do you, just any idea about time of length? Because Ryle preaches the similar, the same length of sermon. 
I just don't know how long. I think I read or heard someone say once that you should be under 40 minutes. I think Spurgeon said that. I could totally be wrong. I could just be uh, saying my own okay. preference here. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I, I'm pretty sure he, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he, uh, somewhere said under 40 minutes. Yeah, I, I think that probably be, you know, if I were had to get, if I had to guess, I imagine that Ryle, Ryle doesn't want to weary his hearers in simplicity. I don't think he would think that would be good. And one of the things he campaigned for uh, in mission churches in Liverpool was shorter services. Um, you, you know, so, so kind of cutting them down, making them a little shorter, um, partly because people had to go to work every day in Liverpool. It wasn't like they got Sabbaths off uh, on the docks. The ships had to go all the time. Um, but uh, I don't think Ryle was like a marathon preacher. I don't get that, that impression. I've never heard, I can't remember hearing like from a newspaper or a magazine saying, you know, Bishop Ryle spoke for two hours or anything like that. I imagine he would be over 30, under an hour, over 30, maybe under 50. Um, but I just don't know. Good question, though. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so you've studied Ryle. You've uh, edited this book. So I'm curious, uh, as a pastor and as someone who t- teaches regularly, how has Ryle affected the way that you do ministry and teach? Yeah, well, really in every I mean, at this point, it's probably the, the the influence is probably so profound. I can't even pinpoint you know, uh, obvious. Exa- I mean, for, for me, one of the things that once I started studying Ryle uh, and working on him as a preacher, I became very conscious of using long or short sentences, both in my writing and in my preaching. Um, and so certainly just the the the. Uh, the hints, the hints and simplicity have are all part of what I do now. I don't I don't do it well, but I certainly I think do it better than I did before because of uh, because of Ryle. Um, but I also teach middle schoolers the Bible. In sixth grade we do a survey of the Bible. In seventh grade we do basic Christian doctrine. In eighth grade we do uh, worldview and world religions. Getting to know Ryle has enabled me, I think, to teach middle schoolers much better than I would have otherwise, because he's he's taught me to think about how can I communicate big truths in simple, clear, forceful ways. Um, so he's, he certainly helped me there. Uh, but also just the visiting. I mean, I, that struck me um, because in an age of celebrity preachers, uh, that's not just true of our age. Ryle's age was an age of golden age of preaching where people would go here to sometimes three sermons a Sunday um, to hear the, the great orator, you know, and the, the you know, to kind of they make the rounds in London. They'd hear Spurgeon and, and so-and-so and so-and-so else. Um, so people loved great preaching in the Victorian world. There were magazines, just like all sorts of magazines about great preaching. Um, can you imagine like going to, to, to Kroger, to Walmart or whatever, and, and seeing, you know, next to Vogue or Time or whatever, you know, uh, the Christian pulpit? I mean, that, that's just a different world. But but it, what strikes me, what, what I impre- one of the things that impressed me most about Ryle and that I've tried to, I've tried to, not as well as I'd like to, but I think I've gotten better at, is 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 not just seeing ministry as preaching. Very important part of Christian ministry. But the pastoral work um, that often goes unnoticed, that, that often goes, I mean, that goes, um, you, you know, you just don't know in an age of celebrities where you're, you're known for your preaching. You, you know, I have no idea who's visiting homes and who's not. But to learn that Ryle was visiting homes, 
when he, um, you know, visiting homes the way he was. I think that was just very challenging to me and made me think about that, you know, the importance of a more hands-on, not just proclaiming, which I think is extremely important. Ron would say that's the sermon is the most important thing you do all week as a minister. Um, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing you do. And so he's challenged me in that way too. I really appreciate your your introduction. You really get the impression, I think what you've tried to do is, you know, there's simplicity for the sake of simplicity or uh, rhetoric for the sake of rhetoric is uh, is meaningless. When Ryle wasn't doing these things so that he could be simple or that he could be uh, persuasive in and of itself, but he, he sought to awaken the sinner, uh, you know, and to awaken their affections. Uh, what do you say? Um, yeah, awaken the, awakening for the sinner, decision for the undecided, and uh, growth in grace for the converted. I think that, that's kind of his shorthand for his ministerial goals, right? To convert, to move to decision, to move towards heaven. That was kind of the... Mm-hmm. So he, yeah, he's seeking to awaken the sinner of their sin and to, uh, to have them in response to flee to the refuge of the cross and to, to, to get right. to Christ. That's the point, is, is, uh, is the gospel, right? He, he wants people to, to right. see the preciousness of Christ and, and uh, flee to him. And I love what you said at the end of the, the chapter. You said, uh, you know, there's a, it's been 130 years since uh, Simplicity and Preaching was first published. Uh, much has changed. Yet, much remains unchanged. Men still have undying souls. The wages of sin is still death. Salvation still comes by grace through faith. And faith still comes by hearing. Therefore, the gospel still needs to be preached simply and clearly, boldly and directly. And as long as that need exists, those who preach and teach God's word can benefit from simplicity and preaching. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, it kind of sums up what I think about this work anyway. You've actually published another book with uh, RHB. Tell us about that book. Uh, where can we find it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, you can find uh, I, I published my my. my what I, I published my doctoral dissertation essentially through them. So uh, I tried to put together an intellectual biography of Ryle. So others have told the story of his life. And what I tried to do is put his ideas. Um, I tried to tell the story of his life, but especially kind of the flow of his ideas and his ministry and put them in their context. Um, and so we, I look at, you know, his conversion, him as a, him as a preacher, him as a pastor, uh, talk about him as a controversialist, um, as an apologist, uh, and the national ministry that that he grew into, and then his life as a, his ministry as a bishop. Uh, but you can get it like it. You can get it at Amazon or or a Reformation Heritage Books. Um, but that's really that was that's the fruit of all the work. About eight years of work on uh, on um, on Ryle. And so it was a it was a blast. It took a long time to to do. I mean, Ryle I think published three hundred sixty three works. <laughs> so now, granted, he he republished a lot of stuff. He was a good uh, recycler of material, but he's anyway. He was such a delight to study, and I hope that this intellectual biography um, that focuses on things like I said, his preaching, his pastoral ministry, him as a controversialist, his national ministry, him as a bishop, is interesting and edifying. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's it's called a tender lion, the life ministry and message of uh, J.C. Rao. That's excellent. I'll make sure to put that into the show notes, and any other books that we've talked about uh, will be there available for the listeners. Um, so, kind of 
uh, moving a little different. I'm curious what projects currently, if, if you have any that you're working on, what, uh, what are they? Sure. Well, I am, uh, Ryle wrote um, a, what I think is kind of a minor spiritual classic, Thoughts for Young Men. Um, and so I, I teach young men. And uh, last year, for the last couple of years, I've been trying to teach them thoughts for young men. And um, and and what I've what I've been doing for the last really really uh, for the last three or four months is trying to simplify the language and modernize it for for young men today, and add discussion questions to it, reflection questions. And so I'm really I'm really just trying to to um, to edit, uh, update, and expand uh, thoughts for young men for, for a new audience. Um, I'm working with with RYM Reform Youth Ministries, and I'm building like a discussion guide to go with it. So it can be used devotionally. Uh, it can be used like with a father and son, with um, you know a mentor and someone he is mentoring, or it can be used in a small group setting. And so that's that's what I've been doing, uh, and after that I'm trying to uh, I'm going to to try to create from Ryle's from various addresses uh, thoughts for young women. Uh, Ryle never wrote that work, but um, you know one of the things I discovered when I started my, my doctoral research is that I was trying to buy all the first edition works of Ryle I could, and so I would buy you know get, I would I would be buying these and getting them, and almost all of them have like handwritten notes in it, and many of them are the handwriting of a woman. Um, so, so ladies have have benefited from Ryle's works, and and what people don't realize, he wrote stuff to ladies in the same way he wrote to younger men. Um, it just didn't make the it just didn't land. He, he didn't have a, a a single work like Thoughts for Young Men for young women, uh, but I teach young women too, and I want to introduce them to Ryle. And so, what I'm going to try to do is is to gather uh, Ryle's various talks to young women. Um, and categorize it, put it together, and uh, deliver that uh, to young women I teach and, and to others. Um, so those are the two projects I'm working on. Um, they're a lot of fun. I mean, it's, I get to, to try to... Ryle doesn't need too much modernization, but my middle schoolers don't know the word vex or beseech, uh, you know, or um, I'm trying to think of some other... There, there's Mar. I, I've, actually, I, I took... Uh, all three young men here, and as oh, I man. as we read through it, I would circle, or I would have them circle all the words they didn't know. Heathen was was a fun one. Entreat, uh, you know, so just fancy or fancies, and so just trying to update that language a little bit, not not trying to change uh, the work at all, but just trying to make sure those uh, young folks don't stumble over those words and give up, but still get what Ryle's trying to do. I think clearly from uh, what we've talked about tonight, Ryle would uh, wholeheartedly approve of this. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. He better approve of it. I'm just trying to do, you know, I'm trying to do what he's, I'm trying to, to, to use his rules and apply it to his works just, you know, 150 years later. That's about it. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think those are, those sound like fa fabulous uh, resources. I think they'll be a blessing to many. I hope so. So last question I have for you is, what books are you currently reading? Is there anything that you got on your nightstand or what you're reading? Well, I've been, uh, I turned 40 last year. And so one of my goals was to, one of the, I wanted to read through the classics of Western philosophy, um, starting with Plato and kind of moving forward. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I finished uh, Plotinus not too long ago. 
and I've moved into the early Augustine. So I did, I finished soliloquies um, and I've got some of those, uh, some of those, oh, I'm, I've got the, it's one of those uh, church history sets where it's like the early Augustine, the late Augustine, stuff like that. So I want to read the early Augustine and move on to, um, to uh, Prudentius and uh, Boethius, and then to kind of move forward to Anselm a little bit. So I've been doing that and reading The American Puritans by um, Dustin Benge and Nate Pickawicks, and I've, I've enjoyed that. I've, I'm almost done with Cotton Mather. Um, I'm related to Anne Hutchinson. No way. And she's like a, she's one of the great yeah so she's one of the great villains of <laughs> of the book and so it's it's fun to to uh, to see how they treated my old aunt many many years ago. Uh, I learned that not through direct revelation of course but through genealogy.com or whatever the, whatever it is the, the ancestry.com that's what it is so that's how I found my connection to one of the the most uh, infamous early American heretics. That's uh, that's that's exciting. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. No, it's a great book. I'm, I'm almost I'm almost done with it. I'm really enjoying it, and I'm actually gonna. Re- I think I'm reviewing it for books at a glance as soon as I get get done with it. So, excellent. Yeah, uh, Nate and Dustin are wonderful brothers. They uh, uh, doing a lot to benefit the church and their their ministries, and so thankful for them. Um, so before we head off here, is there any, uh, if the listeners want to, you know, keep track of what you're doing or follow you on social media or anything like that, uh, where can we direct them? Yeah, I, I, I just opened up a Twitter page a couple months ago. Um, it's Bennett W. Rogers. And I think that's the same one that my Instagram is. I, I tried, I, I laid off of that for, for a long, long time and, uh, actually been blessed by it. I've enjoyed kind of connecting with, with, uh, other guys, especially other guys who like Ryle. Um, so that's been fun. But you can find me at Bennett W. Rogers on Twitter or at uh, on Instagram. All right, brother. It was excellent to have you. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to do this again before too long. 